Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome to episode number 157 of the Gateworld Podcast, a show about all things Stargate. My name is Adam Barnard, and today I'm going to be sitting down once again with the lovely Gateworld contributor Sarah Kehoe to talk about Stargate Universe. So on the main site, Sarah has been writing about Stargate Universe for quite some time. Um, She's a longtime Stargate fan who hasn't yet seen Stargate Universe, and her SGU first-timer column exists to uh, reevaluate the show, but from a fresh perspective. You know, as someone who never saw the show when it came out, we get the opinion of a veteran Stargate fan, but someone who is sitting down, you know, almost 10 years later at this point to see the show for the first time and to share her thoughts with the fandom. So Sarah has gotten up to the middle of season two in her column. So now that she's reached that milestone, we sat down once again with her to discuss the next block of episodes, the next 10 episodes, which is season 2.0. We've previously had Sarah on the show twice to discuss season 1.0 and season 1.5 of Stargate Universe. Those episodes are just a few episodes back in case you want to go listen to them. But in the meantime, we're just going to jump right into things and talk about season 2.0 of Stargate Universe. The main discussion. So Sarah, welcome back to the GateWorld podcast. I'm so excited to have you back to discuss the first half of Stargate Universe second season. I am excited to be back. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, so before we jump in to discussing the second season and the very explosive season premiere intervention, I wanted to just ask you, where was your head at going into this? I think you had a little break between watching, uh, you know, finishing up Incursions Parts 1 and 2 in Season 1 and then actually sitting down to start watching Season 2 and then write your column. Um, You know, how much did you know and and what were you expecting and what were your hopes for the resolution of that nail-biting cliffhanger? I've been avoiding certain areas of the internet to stay as completely clueless as possible about this, which, you know, there's a spoilers moratorium, but I'm pretty sure I'm I'm far past the three reasonable months of not finding spoilers on the internet. <laughs> so, but I did, I go into all this, I have no idea what's coming up. Genuinely, the only thing I know about the end of SGU is that it ended and everyone's upset because they want to know more. That's all I've got. I don't know how it ended. I don't know what people want to know more about. I have no idea the context of it at all. And I've been trying to keep it that way as much as possible so you don't, or I don't, I guess, ruin the ending for myself. So going into all of this, I was completely blind. No idea what's happening. Other than, you know, the Lucian Alliance, they're the big bads going into all of this. No idea who's dead, who's alive, which I loved. And, you know, when intervention actually started there was no previously on stargate sgu there was no (laughs) by the way here's what's going on which actually now that i think about was just like when the series season one started it just kind of started and off we went so that was something they did really well season one i'm glad they carried it over into season two even if i just now realized that i expected some people to die because i know this is a little bit darker take on stuff where people die and they actually stay dead But kind of going into it, I was just totally blind. And it's interesting because I think one of the biggest questions and one of the ones that creates the most anxiety in the in the audience is wondering what happens to TJ, but uh, specifically because of her pregnancy, but the way it kind of just puts you in the middle of her story and, you know, her story that's kind of off the destiny or so we think, 
that was very unexpected for me. I, I still don't know how much I like it. I go back and forth on it, but it was interesting because it's like, it is kind of teasing the tension um, because something doesn't feel right. You're kind of in a dream. You're kind of not. But again, like you still don't really know what's going on in the destiny until the episode really kicks in a few minutes later. Yeah. I, with TJ stuff, I was already in full Ascension mode. Oh, really? It was, you know, Daniel's old diner for her, for whatever reason, it's a cabin. Um, That's, I fully thought she was dead and the ancients were helping her ascend, maybe because of her pregnancy, maybe just because they could. But I, I fully fell for, I guess, my own narrative that I made up uh, (laughs) with her. It was interesting, though, uh, in the season one episode, Faith, TJ nearly stays behind on the planet with Kane and and with, I guess, about a dozen other people. And I feel like we're going to be referencing the episode Faith quite a bit because of how it ties into, you know, this episode and then also Visitation later in this season. Um, but it was something where she really wanted to stay on the planet. You know, she was looking at the destiny and seeing that they were going to probably be there long term. And then she looks at this beautiful planet and thinks, do I want to raise my child on that ship? And I think she kind of gets strong armed, essentially, because of her military allegiance and her relationship with Colonel Young into coming back to the destiny. So for her to kind of if this is indeed imagined, it makes sense because she wished she could have stayed and had a a much happier frontier life and just settle down on a healthy planet full of life versus just constantly winging it and having your life in danger on the ship. And I think that's kind of something that we see in a lot of characters in this season because this is, they have been on the destiny a while for now and they're all malnourished and it's, it's become a very violent setting now having to co, you know, have a battle with Aleutian Alliance and then eventually coexist with them. So, you know, you just looking back, I really like, you know, how they handle that arc and, and how they use that to set the stage for intervention and aftermath. Yeah. And well, and that was also the last place she felt safe. So it would make sense that that's where, if that's where she's dreaming, that's where she would go. Um, and I fully agree. The absolute only reason she is still on that ship is because young gave direct orders to all the military people and were like, you're coming with me. And that's the end of it. And she, at that point, genuinely didn't feel like she had a choice. Yeah, which is heartbreaking in its own right. So what did you think about the way the battle played out? I mean, intervention is is also a nail biter. There is no reprieve after the incursion two parter. Uh, you know, there's a lot of politics and dynamics and strategy. It's very much a war episode. How did you like how that played out? I loved all the stuff with Telford playing double, triple, quadruple, <laughs> like Snape level double agentry going on with him. Right. That was, I think, my favorite storyline of everything that was going on with Intervention. I loved the just how well he jumped back and forth between where his allegiances lied. And I think everyone, you know, the Lucian Alliance and Young definitely still questioned they weren't entirely sure but they just erred on the side of i guess he's with us but i think the one letdown i had with intervention was um gin just kind of like coming in out of the shadows to kill the leader um coming in to just kind of off camera taking out danik it felt a little too easy like they had built up this great tension and oh my god what's gonna happen i was like oh don't worry about it this other character that you've completely forgotten even existed she'll take care of it 
And I mean, I think that almost comes down to the limitations of the TV model. Like, when you're doing a season, you don't know if you're getting another season and who's going to be the cast in your next season and who's going to come back. Like, I know Rona Mitra, who played Kiva in Incursion, I think she was considering coming back and she decided not to. So we're just told in intervention, oh, yeah, you know, Kiva died. Like that's, You don't even see, like, her on the table. Um, so it's like it's one of the unfortunate things where you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's, the, that's kind of the contractual separation between seasons at work. I hadn't even thought about that, and to tell you the truth, when I watched it, I didn't even notice that we really? didn't actually see Kiva. Oh, I was just like, yeah. oh yeah, okay, so she's dead, that's fine, let's keep going. <laughs> Move the story forward, right? Yeah. So what did you think of, then, kind of the direct sequel to Intervention, which is Aftermath, and specifically how, um, you know, the war is over, but um, the the battle between ideologies and factions is... You can't just keep a whole group of people locked up and, you know, the challenges of that start to become clear in Aftermath. I really liked the politics and how they went through everything. It, there's no clear cut. These guys are just evil. End of story. And we're the good guys. And that's all you need to know. Just, you know, I mentioned Grey Jedi last time, and that's the entire cast of characters. Sure. With the exception of maybe Eli, there's no one that's just 100%, you know, pure and good, and you always know their intentions are coming from a positive place. So having the characters, you know, recognize that amongst themselves was a really nice direction to go in. And, you know, you do feel for some of the Lucian Alliance people, and especially getting the background of how they're basically strong-armed, forced, uh, they're not recruited, they're not joining because they want to, um, into being fighters. I think that really ups the sympathy factor for a lot of the people that are part of the Lucian Alliance. Yeah, it's easy in intervention or, or during the invasion to have very much an us-versus-them mindset. You know, the Lucian Alliance are there with a military job to do, and the people of Destiny are fighting for their lives. I mean, even like I think uh, Varro said, look, when the bullets stop flying, we're going to have to learn how to coexist. And, you know, the kind of primal instinct of war wears off. But there's still the fallout of war. It's like two countries who have been at war that have to reconstruct who share a border. And I mean, I thought the show tackled this with a tremendous amount of nuance. And and I mean, it's it's also just in general a gut wrenching episode when you pair uh, the Lucian Alliance drama with uh, the death of Sergeant Riley. Uh, I mean, Young Colonel Young for one has like the worst one of the worst episodes ever. I mean, that guy is constantly in peril. But you know, he has. A, a brutal fight in this kind of like bar brawl setting with the Lucian Alliance where everyone's just duking it out with their fists and he nearly kills a guy. And then later in the episode, he does have to kill a guy, but it's a mercy killing. And I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't I'm curious as how you felt because I remember watching this for the first time and I, I felt really raw after it. I, young killing Riley, I understood the motivation behind the mercy killing. Um, I, I thought the choice of him, like, literally using his bare hands was a little jarring. Sure. I guess would be the right word. And, I mean, there's always the idea of, you know, you don't want to waste your ammunition. Like, there's a strictly pragmatic, there are reasons to do it this way. But it just, 
It was an interesting choice out of the writer's room, I think is the best way to say it. I didn't fully understand it, but it was definitely, you know, pushing out something new and, um, you know, trying something, which is something that I love that the writer's room does here is that they just kind of go for it. They don't rest on staying safe. It could be arguable that Riley's death, or I think it is arguable that Riley's death is a direct result of Rush's negligence and Rush's uh, keeping his discovery of the Destiny Bridge a secret. Um, That's going to become very important as we go on, but just how it plays out in this episode, what did you think of that dynamic? I, uh, one, completely agree that Riley's death is 100% Rush's fault, even if it was Young's hands that, you know, ultimately did it. But I fully agree. And I think that's, you know, one of the other things that really sets this Stargate apart is our, you know, commander in chief, the dude that's in charge. You don't really know how much he should be in charge. And the show itself questions that constantly. It's not, you know, you never questioned Hammond. You never questioned Weir. You always, yep, that's what we're going to do because this is what this person says and this person's a good person. And with Young, his motivations are questionable sometimes. And Rush is just always questionable at all times. Always question Rush. I think it's an interesting question to pose whether we do have any sympathy or understanding for what Rush does. Um, Does he not share um, the information or share the knowledge that the shuttle is in danger out of pure malice or ego? Or does he freeze in the moment in a way that that we understand or empathize with at all? I don't think there's always intentional malice with Rush. Sure. But I think his ultimate motivation is always himself. So, you know, pausing before he knows what to do when the shuttle's in danger and how do I handle it? I think there's a little bit of just like, oh crap, what do we do? But I think that's also immediately followed by, well, what do I do to make sure that I come out in the best possible scenario? Sure, yeah. There's, I mean, a moment of panic, I think anybody would definitely have every right to indulge in a moment of, oh crap. Um But just these actions that he, you know, he took in season one, he, you know, takes it further here in season two. It's always at the end, he's guarding information because either he thinks he's the only person who can properly utilize the information or almost sometimes I wonder if he's worried that he will become useless if he's not the only one that knows how to do stuff. If other people can do what he does, does he become redundant? And does that give Young that final permission to be like, screw it, we don't even need you anymore. Wow, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I also see him, see some of his logic as the whole egomaniacal torture genius dynamic. Like he knows how breathtakingly smart he is. And he has intellectually justified putting other, you know, quote, lesser people's lives in danger so that he can do his work uninhibited, Um, which is morally an absolutely reprehensible way of looking at things. But I think in many times in the show, you know, dating back to the first episode, Air Part Two, where he says, look, politicians have to ask military personnel to sacrifice themselves for the greater good all the time. Like some people in our society are need to be expendable for the rest of us to survive. And 
again, like, it's disgusting to even say out loud, but, like, I think he's just such a religious believer in his own work. He can sleep at night despite other people suffering immensely because of his negligence or purposeful secrecy. I don't know if he sleeps so well. I think deep down in his subconscious, he knows that he isn't necessarily making the right decisions, you know, which is why, you know, we get, you know, Franklin coming back and questioning him and uh, his wife coming back and being like, well, do do you really think this was the best idea? And he has to come to terms with those. He may be growing a conscience a little bit. I don't think it's fully formed, but I, I do think he, at least somewhere deep down, knows that he's making these decisions for selfish reasons and not necessarily the greater good. And then the crazy thing is I just realized the juxtaposition, it happens again in awakening um, at the end of the episode where he's the one who separates the seed ship from the destiny, essentially stranding Telford. And he's again questioned, I believe by his wife, uh, you know, did you do that? Cause you were afraid they were going to make it home and they wouldn't let you come back. You know, again, you know, two episodes right back to back where he performs an action through the bridge that either kills or puts someone's life in danger. And it's largely motivated by his own, yeah, his own agenda. Yeah. You know, it's motivated by his own agenda, his own ego, and you know, a drive to be the hero. He wants to make sure everyone else knows how amazing he is. So what did you think of Awakening as a whole? Um, specifically, I kind of felt that it was a bit more of an old school style Stargate. Some of the horror, the action, the discovering a new race, the the, the ancient mysteries. Hey, and the return of the Stargate themed trumpets. Yes. That was that yes. was like a standout moment for me when they opened up the doors and you just see gates and gates and gates and gates and then those trumpets started playing in the background i was like oh my god that's right this is a stargate show what's happening right now like the fact that they don't utilize the music from the first two shows as often they have pop music coming through i will forever love them for having flogging molly in season one um so to have that moment where it really goes back to the core of this is how literally this whole franchise started is these people put a Stargate on earth. Here's your traditional trumpets from back in the movie. I thought that was an awesome moment. So moving on to pathogen, this story I think is, is a weirdly human story, perhaps reminiscent of some of the early season one episodes that were highly character centric that included, uh, you know, using the stones to go back to earth, which was often a very controversial story choice among fandom. Um, Personally, I felt like this episode, the use of the communication stones and the personal drama felt much, much, much more relevant to the cosmic happenings on the destiny versus just being, you know, human drama for the sake of human drama. I'm very curious. I I am just going to put my bias out right now about how much I love this episode, but I'm curious about how it played for you. I was absolutely heartbroken with Eli being in the hospital room with his mom, listening to her be like, oh, he cares so much, but he sends you over here. He won't come see me. He won't write me. He won't call me. And he's literally standing right there. I was just like, oh God, this poor mom, like this is terrible. 
I felt so badly for her. And at the same time, and I've said all this in season one too, I liked the fact that they weren't just like, hey, random civilian, by the way, here's what's been going on for the last 20 years with our government. Sure. Um, You know, keeping her in the dark, not just telling her everything. And then when they do tell the truth, she's like, uh-huh, sure, I believe you. I, I really loved all that. To me, that was the most... I Realistic is probably a weird word to choose for that, but the most realistic type of reaction I would have expected if someone came up to me and was like, did you know that for the last 20 years we've been traveling to alien planets and fighting an intergalactic battle? I'd have been like, that's great. Um, I'm going to call 911 real quick because I think you might need some help. And specifically for a character who's in the hospital in a weakened state, can almost feel like someone's taking advantage of your vulnerability at the moment where it's like, how stupid do you think I am? How drugged up do you think I am? And yeah. it's, you can just see in the performances and in, in the way the scene is staged. It's like, she feels very cornered and, and you know, she feels like she's being pranked, but it's a really, really sick prank for her. Cause she knows this person knows how much she loves her son. And like, what's weird is just so much of that nuance came through in, in the episode. And I think actually a lot of that is due to Robert Carlyle, who is the director of this episode. Um, you know, Robert Carlyle plays Dr. Rush in the show. And this is the one episode of the show he directed, but you know, he's very much a classically trained actor has a theater background. And I mean, he was just able to get wicked performances out of the whole cast for the deep emotional material. Yeah. I mean, the performances were absolutely phenomenal across the board in this episode. And I think it's something that, um, people who start in front of the camera and then turn around and go behind the scenes to move it. I think they can communicate maybe with the actors on their level a little bit more. Yeah. I loved all of that bit. I think they took it too far when they let her come to the ship. Really? I I do realize like ultimately the big you know, situation with her was that she had just lost her will to live and she could have kept fighting. She could have, you know, kept trying, but she was like, screw it. My kid doesn't even care. I don't care anymore. So having her come to the ship and kind of reignite that, you know, reason to live and this is what's going on. And, you know, you staying alive helps him. It gives him something to fight for. It's giving her something to fight for. I can understand all that. And I don't know how else they would have achieved that without letting her come to the ship. But at the same time, I think it just took it back to that like, oh yeah, we're just going to let every civilian know what's going on and let them use these highly classified (laughs) devices and just hope that by signing the, you know, non-disclosure, they don't go running, screaming in the streets and blow this whole operation. So let's go ahead and talk about Cloverdale, which is by far one of the weirdest episodes of Stargate Universe. This was also an episode that was very, very divisive at the time it came out, I think. Uh, As the show was starting to develop, some people were really getting into the more serialized story of, you know, the discoveries on Destiny and Rush's journey and and the, the, the dynamic with the Lucian Alliance. And then we cut away to this 
bizarre alternate reality dreamscape intercut with a monster movie exactly intercut with like this giant sentient weed so sarah as someone who's you know coming in again with completely fresh perspective no real caveats or expectations and you're getting to watch the show serialized without commercial breaks or waiting every week or whatever to for the next episode to come out what did you think of cloverdale I Cloverdale is actually one of my favorite episodes so far of the season. Oh, really? Yeah, it's I thought, you know, coming in straight out of Pathogen, which was very emotional and very uh, drama heavy to immediately turn around and go to an alternate reality. And also, you know, the weeds are going to eat us and going back and forth (laughs) through that. It I think it was a good kind of break or reset from that type of drama. And I'm also just a huge sucker for an alternate reality where all the actors we know are playing their characters, but their characters in a different scenario. So subtle little differences in how they do things. I, I love watching stuff like that. I always, you know, quantum mirror episodes were some of my favorites in SG one too. And of course the, um, the Vegas episode of Atlantis that just, sure, we're, we're a detective in Vegas. Sounds good. Let's go. You know, I have an English degree. I spent four years learning how to read too much into every little detail. <laughs> um, so I really liked watching it. And when they're in the, you know, alternate reality, getting ready for the wedding, how Scott interacted with the different characters and why does he see them in these ways? Like it made total sense that he saw young as a father figure and Eli is like that annoying kid brother that you just let hang out cause you're being nice. <laughs> um, so I love stuff like that, you know, reading into all of that and just, you know, making up my own reasons as for why things are the way they are. Um, I will say I was very upset with him for how he treated Johnson in the bar scene. I thought he was a colossal jerk. And I was like, oh, that's right. I don't know whether or not I like you. But, you know, on the the monster movie side of the episode, which, I mean, I think the title Cloverdale was a little on the nose that, you know, oh, yeah, that Cloverfield movie came out a couple years ago, didn't it? Um, You know, monsters lurking in the background where you don't see them and all of that. But I loved, you know, we pushed forward with, you know, Chloe's been transforming into some sort of alien creature this whole time. Um, So we kind of got brought back to that a little bit. It was a little obvious that, you know, she was going to be immune and be able to save the day for Scott. But, you know, Greer, when they're opening the, the gates and he literally throws his body on top of them to protect them from the kawoosh, it just reminds me how much I love. I love Greer. He's my favorite. I love him. So let's go ahead and talk about Trial and Error, which is kind of like a, a, a dark Groundhog Day type episode, a very unpleasant window of opportunity yeah. um, with a little bit of a, of, a, of a twist to it in terms of what's causing the uh, repetitious visions of Colonel Young. Um, just pass it off to you. What did you think of this one? I, the more I think about this episode, the more I like it. I enjoyed it while I watched it. Um, and yeah, it was just a window of opportunity without the jokes, but (laughs) I thought, you know, as much as Cloverdale was an interesting, you know, dive into what makes Scott tick, um, trial and error, I think was a really interesting study on young and 
one of my favorite just like really little details about it was, you know, he lives through this terrible scenario. The destiny blows up. He finds himself at the repeat and his very first action was to step back and just watch. And just the idea that he was that quick on the uptake of, okay, something's up. I'm supposed to be learning something. Right. Let's figure out where it went wrong. Um, it didn't take him 12 resets to figure it out. Like, second time out of the gate, he was like, all right, step back, observe and record, and then we'll figure out how to fix this. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to watch him unravel but do it in a way that wasn't like, oh, you know, the guy with PTSD is now an alcoholic and he's going to spiral down and, and take everyone with him. Uh, we also see some things that are kind of respectable about Young. You know, by the end, we see Scott able to reach him. I think another one of my favorite scenes in the whole show is the big, uh, I don't even know if I can call it a confrontation, but it's I guess it is kind of an intervention where... Scott realizes he has to break through to the colonel for the sake of everyone else. You know, Scott's kind of the de facto leader when when Colonel Young has inebriated himself beyond able to, you know, inebriate himself to the point that he can't lead. Yeah, well, and, you know, they've been questioning Young's competency as a leader, you know, almost from the beginning of the series. You know, even Jack is trying to figure out a way to replace him out there and Telford's sole mission for the longest time was to replace Young. And you really see Scott questioning Young's ability to leave a l- lead a little bit. Um, you know, especially in Cloverdale, there's a lot of um, discussion about that a little bit and in his interactions with Telford's character in the alternate reality and seeing him kind of step up and act on it you know, makes you feel a little bit better that should anything happen to Young, if they were to take him out of, you know, his position, there's still some good leaders who know, you know, putting the rest of the crew first is part of being a leader. Right, absolutely. I mean, I almost half assume that Rush or Ray would immediately try to fill the vacuum. But what's weird is that there's a scene with Scott and Ray and Rush, and they and Scott says, come on, like, you've tried to overthrow the colonel before. Don't you want his command post? And, and both of them are, like, weirdly enough, have a moment of self-awareness where they're like, well, we tried it. We both tried to lead, and none, none too successful at that. I think Rush is playing a long game and playing his own angle, but he's basically saying the colonel needs to pull his stuff together and lead. It's like, it's not something that any of us can replace him, even though a lot of us have our issues with him. Well, and I think Rush too realizes that if he were actually the one in charge that everyone was looking to, a lot more people would be questioning what he's doing. And I think, I think that dynamic is a great, or or that uh, contention is a great segue into uh, the greater good and also malice, which I kind of consider a two-parter. Um, the greater good is where Rush's secrecy and Rush's uh, veneer comes crashing down, and again we witness the manipulation and and there and Young, while stuck on an alien ship, finds out and confronts Rush, and uh, this was a a a really really key episode in many regards. Um in terms of developing the cosmic microwave background radiation element of the show and, and Destiny's mission, and also, I, I think, arguably, once and for all, 
kind of settling the divides that have plagued Destiny's ability to function as a team and a unit throughout the entire show up till now. Um, and, and because it is such a dense and important episode, how did you think the show pulled that off? And was it a convincing climax and resolution to a, a long-running story in the show? I I really liked these two episodes. And I just, one of my notes on Malice is like, Malice itself should have been a two-parter. Like, give me three full episodes to explore just these elements of the story. Um, I love, you know, bringing Amanda back, I thought was really cool. Um, you know, Rush manipulating her knowing that she really likes him and he kind of likes her and he just completely uses that to his advantage to okay this is what you're gonna do go do this i'm not gonna trust someone who's been on destiny the whole time to go to the bridge and make all this happen i'm gonna send you because the only thing you're gonna be able to do is exactly what i tell you to do and he you know calling her mandy and you know all that stuff he really you know, plays, plays her very much in character. I can't complain that that is an out of character thing for him to have done. Um, But I did like seeing the other characters come to almost a full realization of what they've been vocally suspecting this whole time. You know, Young loses it. Eli loses it. Like he's getting ready to go kill some people. Uh, t- towards the end of all of this and um, just the the drama and the action all happening together. I thought the pacing and everything was fabulous. And I think that's why I wanted more in just that whole storyline. Yeah. I mean, one of the moments that is well-earned but very surprising is when Rush has an opportunity to essentially let Young die and totally be able to pull it off and say, yeah, I just couldn't reach him in time at the end uh, when when Young overshoots the jump to get back on Destiny. And, you know, uh, earlier in the episode, you actually are convinced that Young might beat Rush to death with his bare hands. And then uh, there's this long scene and so much of it is dialogue. And oftentimes I'm not a huge fan of when shows just dump dialogue on you and expect you to feel inspired or, or to, to really feel enlightened. Um, this is one of those shows where characters can monologue and they've earned those monologues because there's been so much character work done with Rush and Young up to this point that when when Rush is actually able to finally present, here's what I've discovered and, and you know, we have been playing games with each other, can we actually work together? And I think Rush saving his life at the end of the greater good, uh, Rush saving Young's life at the end of the greater good is kind of sealing that bond. It was a great episode that provided a lot of unity and purpose for the characters in the story of Destiny. And what's what's kind of weird is that while Malice also builds on the story threads of the greater good with like Eli or with Gin or with Simeon or with the dynamics with Illusion Alliance, it also immediately puts to the test all the bonds that have been formed in the greater good. Um, because there's a, a murderous rampage of the Destiny, a ton of people are shot, and then there's a manhunt on a planet. Gin is killed. Um, Rush, you know, despite kind of opening up and saying I'm going to be a team player decides to you know not be a team player in some ways and there's a question of is he going to spiral out of control again what did you think of how Malice built on what the greater good did or do you feel like it was kind of thematically working against the greater good to me overall it really overshadows the greater good but I don't really feel like that's a negative because the greater good 
you know, built the foundation for it and it takes that foundation and just keeps running. So it's not, you know, it overshadows it because it ignored it or it overruled it or anything negative like that. I just think it did so much to continue that, that when I think of where all of this goes, I'm more thinking of malice than I was of specifically the greater good. Was that was that really because of the, the scope or the action or, or just the character stuff that takes place in Malice? I think a lot of it was the action. Like, Malice was definitely the... I don't even know what the right words for it is. Like, it was a little bit of a Western. It was a little bit of an alien movie. But there was just Revenge lots of... Revenge thriller as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, all of the running around and the cat and mouse with Simeon and everyone's ready to kill the guy. So, you know, the drama is who's going to kill Simeon and then how are they going to do it? You know, not so much anything else. But I loved all of that. And I think too, having, you know, Rush, like you said, testing that uneasy alliance that they forged in the greater good. Because I fully expected that Rush was going to let Young die. I was more surprised when like Young survived than anything when it came to the greater good. Um, but having all of that really come to a head and on top of all of that, all the the running around and the, you know, the canyons and the just the scape of what they were dealing with in Malice as far as like physical location just I think makes it feel much more grand. Right. Than the, you know, trapped on a ship. Um, situation in greater good it puts some of the space opera back into the show because it's this very very personal drama that's happening on this massive alien canvas and i think while while um the show's production design team and the show's visual effects team were getting really good at their jobs in stargate universe and were able to use green screens um like in the episode lost or or actual practical builds like in the episode time they were able to make these alien places look really good and not just use an undecorated vancouver forest which we'd (laughs) seen for you know a couple hundred episodes in the earlier shows um still to this point i don't know if um visual effects or even good production design can replace incredible on-set locations and and malice actually shot in this incredibly exotic location in new mexico called the bisti badlands um and in the show had visited new mexico in the first season for airport three and shot on the white plains like the, i think it was kind of a military base but even you know priding myself on watching like a lot of blockbuster content and and watching a lot of movies that are shot in exotic locations there's something just so utterly bizarre and surrealist about the Bisti Badlands. Like it looks like it was designed by Salvador Dali, like just the way the shapes work. And it really, really, really does feel like you're on the other side of the universe. And again, like they didn't have to augment the set. They didn't have to bring in their own props or, or structures. It's just, I mean, you point a camera and you shoot and you let the cat and mouse game unfold. And it was kind of like the minimalism of it actually made it feel much more grand. It just felt so raw. Malice is kind of a masterclass in Stargate's ability to tell, with a very small amount of money, tell a massive and compelling action story that can even compete with some stuff that's in cinemas that are blockbuster filmmaking right now. Yeah, and that's, this is a whole different rant on my end, but that's one thing that modern, you know, blockbuster cinemas drive me crazy with is all of the digital effects. I love, I love the practical effects and just the fact that 
they just found a desert and were like, here you guys go, run about, we'll follow you with a camera. I think it gives it a much more realistic feel, even though we know we're on some planet billions of light years away, it still feels grounded and, you know, pushing all that through. And then it was not lost on me, the stampede Mufasa death (laughs) there at the end. Mufasa. I mean, here come the wildebeest, there goes Simeon, you know, quick shot to the head and we're done. But it felt very beautifully Lion King. I loved it. Would you say that's one of your favorite episodes or was the fact that it was so short or, you know, so much transpired in a narrative sense? Did that kind of detract from the enjoyment or the artistic integrity of the episode? I think this is definitely one of my favorite episodes so far of season two. And I think it's because it left me wanting more so much. It's kind of a little case with Firefly. Like, yeah, we can get a season two, but is it going to be as good if you stretch it out too far? So I can want more all I want. I probably don't need more. But the fact that it left me wanting more, I think, is really what puts it high up on the list of top episodes. Totally. So let's move on to the final stretch of episodes in the first half of Stargate Universe Season 2, which is Visitation and Resurgence. Um, Visitation kind of takes a hard left turn, in my opinion, from where the show was going as a whole um, with the mystery of the destiny. And and, uh, I guess the Lucian Alliance story arc is kind of, for all intents and purposes, wrapped up after Malice. You know, Simeon was the real problem child that was left over. You know, Gin killed Danik really early on. Danik was the other, you know, psychopath military leader. So now I guess in some sense we've kind of closed part of that chapter um, while still grieving some of the loss. And then now, you know, the people we left behind suddenly reappear. Um, The same people that TJ saw herself with in Intervention. And, you know, in Intervention, TJ sees the same nebula in in real life on the destiny that she saw in her dream. So there's some question of maybe did her spirit or soul or consciousness go back to the planet or, or was there some ancient intervention um and then this episode kind of provides some disappointing answers to that to those questions posed early on but also turns into its own kind of little contained horror story um that is is deeply disturbing uh there there's some deeply disturbing depictions of what happens to the people who return from the planet we saw in season one's faith yeah it's I really liked Visitation. I liked the fact that nobody knew what was going on. Like, there was just, no one even had an inkling. Um, And then something that, you know, Universe has been playing with the whole time is just this spiritual, is there something bigger out there? What is that something if it's there? And, you know, head on taking on, um, in this case, traditional Christianity for some of the characters. (laughs) versus that's true yeah you know sg1 it was always oh yeah there's the ancients there's the ascended ones there's some random extra thing that we're creating for our intents and purposes and for this one it's just like yes this guy really likes to go to church a lot and so this is what he believes and we had that with scott from the very beginning yeah uh, you know being raised in a very religious environment and the fact that they take that on head on without telling anyone they're wrong it's just a this is what individual characters very firmly believed 
I really liked that aspect of it. The being willing to bring something less sci-fi into it, I thought was really cool. Um, And it's something that the fact that they drug it out before people even started dying. At first, we just, for a solid 15 to 20 minutes, just didn't know why these people were here. (laughs) And then suddenly someone gets a nosebleed and dies. Yeah. On... You know, SG-1 on Atlantis, the first nosebleed death would have been the cut to, and now we roll credits, and now we'll start our story. And instead, that was, you know, the midpoint of our story here. And once one person went, they all started dropping like flies. As soon as we started getting the Kino footage from Eden and seeing, you know, actually what happened to everybody that bright light came and I was like, oh my God, guys, it's Oma. She's back. <laughs> and I was a little disappointed when she didn't come, but I do like, at least as far as I've seen, because I've only gotten for th- through these first 10 episodes. I nearly got ahead of myself there. I'm sorry. No, you're good. But I just, I like the fact that they don't give you the concrete answer, at least not straight away. And I also liked, you know, this season two of, or episode two of season two with Riley. Like he was so, staunchly on the other end of the spectrum like he was 100% atheist there's nothing else out there this is it this is what we've got and you know it was an interesting play against Scott within that episode but to have it kind of play up against how many characters were feeling here in visitation and what got many characters questioning stuff here is just something that they've they've always played with a little bit, but this was the most head-on they've taken it. It was nice because they didn't make a definite statement. They kind of just presented in a natural manner a lot of differing viewpoints. And I mean, you know, if you take an international sample of people, which is essentially what Stargate Command is made up of, people from different backgrounds, scientists, soldiers, civilians, they're going to all believe different things. And they're going to have their own lens of, of criticism as to, or their own way of making sense of everything that happens on the ship. And I, I really appreciate that the show took some time to, you know, to scale back the action and, you know, focus on just very, very basic elemental character storytelling. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing you can't not talk about with this episode is TJ's baby, which that was a heartbreaking to watch her go through all of that. And for Young to just look at her like, you're a crazy person. Uh, that is just one of those storylines that they keep revisiting. And I really like how quietly they revisit it. You know, it's not a soap opera where we're going to sit around and scream and cry about it for 15 minutes every episode. But like any, you know, when something happens in your life, it does keep coming back to you in certain situations. And so I like that they don't forget to include that. So now I guess we're at the end of the road with the final episode of season 2.0, which is the very explosive um, ramp the action back up mid-season finale called Resurgence. Um, A lot happens in this episode. Oh my gosh, where to begin? I think a lot happens here. And to me, the premise of this episode is the most traditional Stargate premise of... We found a thing. What happens if we poke it? Oh, God, we <laughs> poked it. Now how do we fix the fact that we poked this thing? Uh, you know, just the classic, we can't just leave it alone. Like, this is a ha- this is a battlefield, guys. It's haunted. There are ghosts. You don't just go wandering around Gettysburg 
but they're going to send a ship out just to see what's going on and then be surprised when something happens. Yeah, as we were talking about earlier, the show really does like to ramp up the tension. Resurgence takes a bit of time to establish scene geography and what have a debate about should we go into this crazy, creepy battlefield. And I really like the way the show, the season and these kinds of episodes are building up the drama. You know, it's funny because when I was young, I was like, get to the action. Like, when are they going to start firing their P90s? Like, let's shoot some bad guys. Um, Blow something up yeah, already. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's honestly, that's fine. And, you know, that's that's a ton of fun, too. I do think the show and this episode is emblematic of the show taking a bit of a more mature and sophisticated approach to suspense and drama and then you know, ramping up the dynamics, just building and building and building and building. And then when the explosive action comes, you're already on the edge of your seat and you're totally in it versus just kind of being in it for the eye candy. Yeah. Well, and, you know, bringing back those little Ninja Turtle looking (laughs) aliens. Yeah. I like I know they've given them a name, but they're ninja turtles to me. The Ursini, right? The brown yeah. the, the little earth toned aliens, yeah. Yes. They um they when I first started watching it, they totally looked like ninja turtles to me. And last weekend I was at the National Video Game Museum and we were playing original Super Mario and then I realized there's those little I don't think it's the Goombas. Those are the mushrooms. But Bowser has those little minions that are just these tiny little turtles that just walk at you and you have to throw their shells. And I, the first thing I saw was like, oh my God, it's those little guys from Universe. That's where they are. That's where they came from. <laughs> so what did you think of the introduction of the drones? Um, you know, I, I guess it's a good time to remind everybody that as of now, you know, recording this discussion, you have not seen past resurgence. Um, And it's fair to say some things that are in this episode will have a big effect on the last half of the season. But considering you haven't seen that yet, what do you think of this uh, new introduction? It's not quite an alien race, but it is a entity or it is the technology of an unknown entity that we haven't quite discovered yet. Honestly, I feel bad because I didn't really take much notice of them when I watched this. I was distracted by a lot of the other stuff that was going on. At least as far as the context that I've had them, I, to me, it was a plot device. Like, okay. this is the re- this is what we're going to do in order to justify bringing Telford back. And so that's what I thought, like, the main cusp of this episode was. So now I, I'm probably going to have to rewatch it before I start heading further into the season. Just to pay attention to something I hadn't realized was something I needed to be paying closer attention to. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. You know, something that... They've really been very quietly going through this entire, you know, season so far that it's been such a subtle little every now and then we touch on it that, you know, you and I have barely talked about it is Chloe and her whole transformation. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, girl. But, um, you know, that too makes me think of, you know, now knowing that the drones are something a little bit bigger than just a convenient plot device. But that's something that this show does is that something that may be a little innocuous may seem like it's just a one-off situation will come back to bite you either the very next episode or six or seven episodes down the line there's less of an adventure of the week dynamic and more of a we're telling an interwoven story and you're not going to know when something uh, becomes relevant again that's why i think it rewards serialized viewing I know you've said that, and I'll definitely ask you again once you're done with the whole season, um, is the fact that you can watch these back-to-back really helping 
connect the greater story because I remember and people around me would say, gosh, it was just, you know, waiting weeks and then waiting four months between half seasons or even just breaking up the episode with commercial breaks is not helping me get into the drama. Yeah. Um, And we talked about this last time, too. It's in that this particular version of Stargate, even though it's very much a we're trying to keep up with Battlestar Galactica ultimately is the motivation. It's ahead of its time. Yeah. In that being able to just sit down and binge watch, which was not a thing, you know, back when this show was really on, it was starting to slowly become a thing, but to be able to just sit down and watch them back to back to back and watch three or four episodes in a row or after a really slow one, or maybe a very emotionally draining one, you can step away from it, but then immediately come back at your own schedule. It's something that, serves this show very very well and it just wasn't something that was available when it was initially airing certainly yeah and and i i think the show probably the most serialized part of the show is this the final 10 episodes so i will be very very excited to have you back in a little bit um to come discuss the home stretch of stargate universe which you know now it hurts a little bit to say that out loud (laughs) It's going to be the final time. Are there any thoughts that you have or any anything you want to reflect on just in these 10 episodes as a whole? Maybe not specific or singular to certain episodes, but just, you know, themes or or kind of through lines that are developed throughout season 2.0. I I love how much this show takes its time developing things and you know letting those through lines maybe drop for a single episode or you know you touch on it for two minutes here and 90 seconds there depending on which episode you're in but I think one place I would have loved to have seen a bigger storyline and I think it would have impacted me bigger was with Gin. I thought she was severely underused and I would have loved to have gotten at least a few more episodes out of her before Simeon had to show up and ruin the party for everybody. If we had had more time with her, her death would have felt more impactful. Yes. As much as it, you know, very much, you know, moved forward along the story, it was a little bit of a fridging situation. It wasn't a straight up fridging, but, you know, she genuinely hooked up with Eli one time and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm I'm down with this. This is great. Oh, she's dead. Okay. Never mind. Um... I would have liked to have, you know, seen them together for at least maybe two or three episodes, seen what, you know, how Chloe reacted to that, you know, give him something or Eli and Scott something to bond over. I think they could have done a lot of interesting character dynamics by including her more before we ultimately lose her. Yeah, absolutely. So looking ahead to the final 10 episodes, I just want to pose you one last question. Where do you think the show is going? And and knowing that it does kind of end in a premature manner, what are you hoping to get out of the final season, even with the knowledge of, of a, a premature demise? I I feel like we are headed towards a full realization of having a big bad involved um, you know, the Smurfs are coming back. We've got the Ninja <laughs> Turtles. My, you know, child of the 90s heart is loving all of it. And I think that's something that the show hasn't necessarily been missing because they've been there the entire time. But I think I'm hoping for and a little bit anticipating 
a bigger focus on those types of situations. And apparently I'm I'm looking for something with drones coming up in my, my next sit down. I got to learn how to keep my big mouth shut, don't I? <laughs> so thank you again, Sarah, for joining us for this discussion on season 2.0 of Stargate Universe. If you want to go read Sarah's thoughts in written form, she has a column called SGU First Timer, which is on our site. As of the release of this podcast, all of her you know, season 2.0 entries will be on the website. So if you want to go read some more detailed thoughts in written form, absolutely go recommend going to the site and checking that out. And very excited to have you back in a couple months to talk about the last season of Stargate Universe or the last half season of Stargate Universe. I will preface it by saying it is some of my favorite Stargate and uh, a lot of the things you've indicated that you like to see, I, I don't think you'll be disappointed in. I, I'm, and I'm really, really excited to hear your reflections on those episodes when you get to it. Yeah, well, I will definitely see you then. All right, we'll catch you next time.